Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Cebukca. I'm a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute, and we have a distinguished guest today, Professor Richard Falk. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, thank you. Um, a brief introduction uh, for Richard Falk. Um, uh, he's a professor emeritus of international law and practice at Princeton University, where he was a faculty member for about 40 years. Dr. Falk is a leading scholar, thinker, and prominent activist dedicated to peace and justice. Between 2008 and 2014, he served as United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories. He is a prolific writer and author of editor, author or editor of more than 50 books, mainly dealing with international relations and global justice. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So today is March 22nd, and almost a month ago, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine and started the all-out invasion with shelling and strikes to the cities. And if you look, when we look at the numbers from the United Nations, the Russian invasion has led to more than 2,000 civilian casualties and forced 3.5 million people to flee their country and 6.5 million people being internally displaced within Ukraine. Also, there has been significant destruction of civilian infrastructure. Um, so Dr. Falk, uh, as an international law scholar, how do you evaluate the performance of United Nations considering the escalation of the conflict and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Ukraine? Well, it, it's a uh, difficult uh, question to answer without considering uh, the broader context of what is happening in Ukraine in two ways. First, uh, uh, taking account of the institutional design of the UN itself, it was it, the grant of a veto power to the five permanent members of the Security Council, which include Russia and the United States, of course, meant that these five countries that were the victors in World War II uh, were not subject to the discipline of either the UN Charter or international law. They could uh, exempt themselves whenever they uh, whenever their strategic interests so dictate. So whether you consider that part of world order, uh, uh, that uh, geopolitical exception to accountability under international law, or you consider uh, this kind of geopolitical overlay as a aspect of international law, it makes quite confusing uh, the uh, assessment. I, I think it's probably uh, desirable to keep the two things apart and to say that there's no question that the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the uh, tactics that it has employed uh, since the attack on February 24th uh, is, uh, is a clear case of aggression, a crime against peace, and uh, probably crimes against humanity in the course of the conduct of the war. 
But even saying that, you have to notice, or you should notice, that at the end of World War II, at the Nuremberg uh, trials, uh, the defeated countries were held accountable for their violations of international law, including the crimes against peace and crimes against humanity. Uh, but the victors were not. They were given a, a kind of a grant of impunity. And uh, the defendants couldn't even say what we did was no worse than what the vic the people prosecuted, the countries prosecuting us have done. So it, it was a, a matter of victor's justice. Same thing happened at the end of the Iraq war, uh, even though the aggression was by the US. Saddam Hussein, the, the uh, victim of the aggression, uh, was brought to trial and executed. And there's no doubt that he committed uh, war crimes, but there's also no doubt that the attack was a violation of uh, the UN Charter, a fundamental violation. The US had tried to get uh, UN permission to attack in 2003 and was denied and went ahead with the uh, war. And President uh, George W. Bush at the time said, it shows that the UN is irrelevant uh, by its failure to give authorization, which again reinforces this point. There's one law for normal countries. There's an another law for geopolitical actors. And it's an irony that the most dangerous countries in the world have been given this grant of uh, not impunity or non-accountability, geopolitical exception uh, to uh, international law. And uh, as has been commented, the UN holds accountable the weak countries, yet lets the strong ones do what they wish to do. So that's part of the context. The other part of the context, which is more obvious, I think, uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is quite horrible, but it, it resembles what the US has been doing in a series of other countries, including Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, and if you go back a bit, Vietnam. Uh, so uh, it's a precedent for, for geopolitical actors to engage in regime changing uh, interventions without suffering adverse consequences under international law. So that's the, uh, the basic situation as I see it. Uh, thank you. So you provide a kind of historical background. That's that's uh, great. Um, so when we look at the um, the ground and we say uh, the death toll and the destruction is uh, 
increasing and expected to increase over time. So what can be plausible exit from the war that can minimize the ongoing suffering? Well, I think uh, it's in the interest of both sides. And by both sides at this point, I mean Russia and the US, US-NATO, if one wants to put it that way. Uh, it's increasingly evident that if this war go, goes on, uh, the world will suffer in a number of ways, not only the Ukrainians, including a, a regional food crisis of great severity because Ukraine and Russia are major exporters and the countries in the MENA region are very dependent on uh, Russian uh, and Ukrainian imports and it will generate a global economic recession. So there's a strong incentive to stop the killing and to uh, at least establish an immediate ceasefire. Uh, and that what, what accompanies that ceasefire is more difficult to um, project at this point. It would include some form of neutrality uh, for Ukraine as far as uh, joining NATO or uh, having any kind of NATO uh, weapons uh, in their territory and doing training exercises and so on, even if they didn't join NATO. Mm -hmm. And uh, so per some kind of permanent uh, neutrality coupled with a pledge of uh, non-aggression by uh, Moscow uh, would be a, a starting point. And then some kind of garan uh, restored guarantees uh, of the uh, Russian-speaking minority to have language rights and cultural rights within the two, two eastern provinces uh, that uh, Putin declared as independent sovereign states. So uh, those features seem to me uh, to be um, uh, negotiable. And whenever the war is ended, uh, it probably will uh, take something like that form, the peace, whatever peace agreement the real challenge is to make that happen sooner rather than later and avoid both the Ukrainian ordeal from uh, deepening and persisting and also uh, protecting the uh, world system from and the regional system from the adverse uh, ramifications of a continuation of the Ukraine uh, struggle. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, there are strong incentives to uh, reach a early ceasefire coupled with a sustainable uh, peace agreement. Mm -hmm. 
But having said that, uh, one notices that this has become a proxy war between Russia and the United States. And there's some in the inner circle of advisors of uh, Biden that seem to want to let the war go on because that will weaken Russia and perhaps divide Russia and China. In other words, they have geopolitical motivations for not stopping uh, the war at this point. Similarly, uh, Putin is in a situation where uh, unless some sort of uh, appearance of having achieved uh, his objectives is reached, would seem as though this was a uh, colossal Russian defeat. And uh, therefore, the challenge is to find some way to offset the influence of these hawkish elements in Washington and to give Putin enough of a reward for the attack, as unpleasant as that is, in order to avoid even worse consequences. It's a very difficult situation, and it hasn't been helped by the inflammatory kind of rhetoric uh, that uh, Biden has used, accusing Putin of, Putin of being a war criminal and having no soul, and, and uh, generally uh, uh, taking a kind of a self-righteous inflammatory view, which is, I said earlier, is not justifiable uh, by the US given its own past record of ignoring the sovereignty of uh, independent states. And that Biden was himself a strong supporter of the Iraq war in 2003. So if he applies the same standard to himself as he applies to uh, Putin, he too would be a war criminal. Okay, so um, you highlight the importance of a peace deal and um, it's, it's so urgent for the Ukrainians um, and you know, to, get, to deal with this suffering. And for the and, world, because yeah. you know, famine is quite possible as a, if they don't, address this problem uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, it's very dangerous for the, uh, especially the countries that are most dependent on uh, Russian and Ukrainian exports of food. Yeah. Uh, and on the other side of the aisle, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov explained the terms for peace deal, and he pointed out the the Nazification of Ukraine, which seems to be a, a blunt and non-factual criticism about Ukraine. So how does a peace deal is possible when Russia comes with a non-realistic terms? Well, uh, you have to hope that that's a kind of uh, diplomatic ploy that is a pre given as a, a precondition that 
will be <clears throat> um, ignored in the actual negotiations. That, mm -hmm. uh, of course, as you say, if uh, if uh, what Lavrov has said and what Putin has said at various times, there would be no possibility for a negotiated settlement. The other one issue that could be uh, used is to uh, have a referendum for Crimea as a uh, kind of compromise. Russians would probably win that uh, referendum as they won the earlier one and could claim that uh, this was in, consistent with the right of self-determination and so on. But it would be a, a kind of way of diffusing the tensions. Okay, um, so, you know, you are actually so much concerned that this, this war actually turns out to be a World War III or a nuclear war. So do you see a possibility that the international community can generate a workable arrangement that brings long-term peace to the region and mitigate the risk of the nuclear war? Well, it's, it's a very, precarious situation with uh, so, uh, so many nuclear facilities in the Ukraine. And uh, uh, there's a particular sensitivity because uh, in uh, after, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine agreed to transfer their nuclear weapons to uh, Russia and Russia in turn pledged uh, not to ever uh, violate Ukrainian sovereignty. And uh, so the, uh, and supposedly uh, Putin would have only, if there's some nuclear uh, threat or some situation which suggests that a attack has been launched on Russian territory, Putin has no more than eight minutes to decide how to retaliate. That's not a situation that brings much comfort to those that are familiar with it. Uh, so I think the uh, uh, being conscious of the precariousness of this situation, where other wars like World War One, the no, none of the actors really wanted that war. They stumbled into it by a series of mm -hmm. escalating incidents. And that can very easily happen here, particularly if the reports that uh, Putin is um, uh, emotionally uh, unstable at this point and uh, uh, fears the loss of his own power, you know, uh, Autocratic leaders are not very trustworthy in crisis situations. So it's not in the interest of the West or the world to push him into a corner. He would be very dangerous if, if that happens. You don't have to love him to come to this conclusion, but uh, uh, the self-preservation of really Ukraine and the rest of the world depends on acting rationally, mm -hmm. what I call responsible geopolitics. 
And so far, uh, the West has not managed uh, to pursue responsible uh, geopolitics. For instance, uh, Biden's State of the Union address to the U.S. Congress on March 1st was irresponsibly inflammatory and didn't give any uh, attention to the prospect for a peace and a ceasefire or the urgency of a peace ceasefire was very uh, uh, one-sided and sort of mobilizing uh, a war uh, mongering spirit in this country and in the West. Um, uh, thank you, Richard. So uh, I'd like to conclude our conversation with talking about uh, China. So considering China's relationship with Russia, uh, so how do you think the Ukraine war can influence global dynamics and global security in the long term, especially, you know, uh, based on your macro approaches and understanding the, uh, the global dynamics as an international scholar? No, I'm glad you put that question. I mean, China, of all of the three geopolitical actors uh, now active in the world, uh, China is the most economistic and the least oriented toward uh, military power. Uh, it's gained its ascendancy through uh, soft power and economic expansion. And uh, Therefore, I think of it as being actually and potentially a responsible uh, geopolitical actor. And unfortunately, again, uh, both Trump and uh, Biden have tried to geopolitically confront China, I think, because, and uh, militarily, which is the only comparative advantage that the US has at this point in uh, confronting other major powers. And it's not a usable advantage as these wars have shown, all these interventions have ended in failure. And so uh, China really uh, has the potential uh, to teach the world that the war system is no longer the way to secure strategic interests. And, and instead of confronting China, we should basically be trying to learn from China. It has a lot to teach the rest of the world, even though it's not perfect and it's, uh, it has uh, human rights problems within its borders that are uh, not uh, very uh, pleasant for the people that are subject to these uh, restrictions. Uh, but it's in its influence beyond its borders, it's basically pursued a policy of political non-intervention. It, it seeks to exert its influence, as I said, economically and mm -hmm. through what I would call win-win relationships, where it benefits those that it deals with economically. It builds harbors, 
infrastructure and uh, improves uh, the uh, capacity of uh, poorer countries in Africa, Asia, uh, and in turn does not uh, does not establish military bases and uh, try to uh, exert military advantages as a consequence. So I think it provides a geopolitical model for how to behave in the 21st century. Um, thank you, Richard. Thank you so much for your time and great insights. And it's, it, it's a pleasure having with you, uh, having you today. Thank you. Well, I, thank you for your questions. I, I enjoyed being with you. I hope we covered the ground adequately. Thank you.